What is the greatest problem in the world? What's the greatest problem that you could ever face? Is it the coronavirus? Is it natural disasters? Is it cancer? Is it economic upheaval? What is the greatest problem we could ever face? And I would say that none of those even compare to the greatest problem that we face today in this world. And the greatest problem by far in the world is God's wrath. There is no greater problem than the wrath of God. God is angry at people. And because of his anger, therefore judgment is coming. You know, there are these top 10 lists of music all over the place. And uh, if you were to think of the problems in this world, there is one problem that always stays as number one in the list of problems. And that is the wrath of God. Throughout history, that has always been and is today the greatest problem facing mankind. But God has graciously not left us without warning. God has graciously warned us, and we see warnings in thousands of different ways every day that we get up. We see it in the fact that there is natural disasters. We see it in the fact that we are aging and getting old. We see it in, in, in viruses, in cancer, in thousands of different ways we see the reality of God's judgment by his merciful reminders that things are not right between us and God every day. All of this is like a loud megaphone from God telling us things are not right between you and God. But the good news is that God has given us an even greater explanation of the problem than all these evidences of wrath that are around us. And where do we go to find the explanation for the wrath of God? The answer is the Word of God. The Word of God tells us everything we need to know about the wrath of God and His coming judgment. And it is passages like the one we're looking at today, Isaiah 34, that are designed to articulate to us and help us to understand the reality of God's wrath. From verses 1 through 17 of chapter 34, it is entirely dedicated to explaining to us the reality of God's wrath and the judgment that is coming. In verse 1, we see that God summons the people from all over the world. We see the word nations there, all over the world, because he has something to tell them. And what he has to tell them is about God's wrath and the coming judgment. And this is the last thing in the world we would naturally want to hear today, isn't it? I mean, we would do everything we could to cover this up, to kind of breeze over it and not really look at it in detail. We do not like to confront the reality of God's wrath and what it means. I mean, how many of you have memorized any portion of this chapter? You probably memorized some of the next chapter, chapter 35, that is all about the salvation of God, but probably not chapter 34. 
So why do we need to hear of this wrath and this judgment? And we're going to spend a little bit of time before we even read the passage of understanding why we need to hear this today. You need to hear this so that you can know the truth about who God is. You see, God is a king. And to be a king means that you rule. Now, you can have the title of king, you can be called a king, but you don't function as a king if you don't rule. And God rules not only over a little space, the most people can rule over is really small and tiny compared to what God rules. God rules over everything always and at all times. And not only does God rule over everything at all times, everywhere, but he also is the perfect king. What this means is that God is just and righteous in his ruling. And what that means is that God is going to judge everyone who rebels against him. He has to if he is the perfect king. And so he is going to judge those who do not submit to him, those who rebel against him, because he is the good king. And in fact, his kingdom, the greatness of his name as king and the greatness of his kingdom is determined by his willingness and faithfulness to judge all who rebel against him. So if you don't understand this about God, if you don't understand God this way, then none of the passages of Scripture that deal with his judgment will make any sense to you. And you will have to try to put together the puzzle pieces of Scripture, and you will not be able to fit these passages in. So it's very important you understand God as judge. You need to hear this so you can flee from judgment to the safety of God's salvation. You see, if God is king, then you should look around you with amazement. I mean, it is amazing how patient God is with us. Look at all the good things we have in this life. Anything good that we have is God's gracious patience with us. And he is greatly patient with us. He is very gracious to us. But the problem is we're going to take this patience as a license to sin. If we don't understand that this is his grace and his mercy and his patience, it's not what we deserve. If we don't understand God's judgment, then we will not run to him for salvation. We will think, well, God doesn't care. I don't see any judgment coming upon me. I don't see any problems in my life that appear that God is angry at me. And so we need to understand his judgment and the reality that he is angry at us. And that's why we need to see all the, the, the various ways that God reminds us in this world that things are not right, such as death, disease, natural disasters, all these things. And his goodness on top of that and giving us anything we don't deserve should lead us to see that we need to be saved so we need to hear passages like this. It won't make any sense. And in fact, the next passage that is all about God's salvation, chapter 35, won't make any sense to us if we don't understand God's judgment in chapter 34 first. We won't run to Jesus for salvation if we don't understand his judgment accurately.
You need to hear this so you can praise God properly for his salvation that he has provided. You can only praise God to the degree that you understand that he has saved you from his wrath and his judgment. Only to that degree will you praise God for the greatness of his salvation. But there's another reason that his judgment should cause you to praise him. You see, not only is God delivering you from sin, but also he is going to remove all sin and rebellion from his kingdom by judging sinners. And that should pray, cause you to praise God that he is giving to you a perfect and great kingdom. So not only is God going to deliver you from sin, but he's going to deliver you into a perfect and great kingdom because he judges sinners. And we should praise God for that. You need to hear this so that you can properly give the gospel warning to people who are coming under God's judgment. You see, you can't diagnose the problem correctly if you don't understand what the problem really is. You can't instruct people and help people if you don't understand what their problem is. You see, you can only properly communicate the gospel in light of his judgment. You are in a terrible condition because of God's wrath. God has lovingly provided a solution in Jesus Christ. God has provided a way to deliver you from his wrath and into his favor through Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Passages like this help form our understanding so that we can properly love and care for people by communicating the reality of the judgment that is going to come. We often are most concerned with reducing the gospel to the most unoffensive, the most inviting, the most unjudgmental way we possibly can. Rather, we certainly shouldn't add offense to the gospel, but we need to speak the truth accurately. That should be our most and greatest concern when we give the gospel. The rest of this passage explains to those whom Isaiah has gathered together, whom God has summoned the nations to hear, uh, all about God's wrath. It explains what we need to hear today to understand the wrath of God and the judgment that is coming. So I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 34. Please follow along, and I want you to listen to what God has to tell us about his wrath. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. 
The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Brozra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The oil, the owl, and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and adobe of an abode of ostriches. And the wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. There the, oil, the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Instead, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with a line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. First of all, you need to see the greatness of God's wrath that he has towards you in this passage. And you see the greatness of God's wrath in the universal, the global extent of it. You see, God is enraged at the nations. And within the nations, he is enraged at the hosts that, they, that constitute the nations. His rage against the nations reaches all the way up to the stars in verse 4. And the point is emphatic that everyone without exception, all people everywhere, stand under the wrath of God. But we ask, what about those people in my life who I know who are do-gooders? Those people who do really good things. And you see, if, they, if their righteousness is not based on, if it doesn't flow from, and is not for the sake of Christ himself, then their righteousness, their good deeds, are not righteous at all in God's sight. If they have not fled to Jesus Christ for safety and his righteousness, then the righteousness they are trusting in is a faulty righteousness. It is not righteousness at all. It is a self-righteousness. You see, such people need to be saved from the wrath of God. And you might even say that such people need to be saved twice. They need to be saved not only from their own righteousness, but also from their own sin. You see, the greatness of God's wrath is also 
seen in the severity of the judgment that he brings. And we're going to emphasize the severity of the judgment that he is going to bring because that is the major portion of Scripture in, in these verses. It is the major uh, portion of Scripture is devoted to describing for us the greatness and severity of the judgment. The severity of God's wrath can be seen in the words describing God's attitude towards the nations. And it says here he is enraged and he is furious at them. And notice he is not just enraged at the nations as if they are entities in themselves. He is enraged at the people, the hosts within the nations. And Psalm 7 verse 11 confirms this truth. It says, God is angry at the wicked every day. And the severity of God's wrath can be seen in the actions God is going to take towards the nations in verses 3 through 15. God is going to, it says, slaughter the nations in verse 3 through 4. In fact, it says here he's going to leave the corpses out in the open, which is to leave them open to public shame. And not only that, but the stench from the dead corpses will rise up and fill the air. And not only that, but the picture is of a mudslide of blood coming down from the mountains. The mountains covered and flowing as if a mudslide of blood is coming down from them. The same slaughter is also described as a sacrifice in verses 5 through 7. The sword of God, it says here, is preparing the sacrifice. And the blood of the sacrifice on this altar will come pouring down the sides, just as it would have been for a Jew when they made their sacrifices. Down the sides of the altar, so much that the ground is saturated in the blood and in the fat of the sacrifice itself. God is also going to turn the streams and the land into an eternal, never-ending, burning fire forever. We see that in verses 9 through 10. The emphasis is on the continuation of the burning, the foreverness of the fire that we see here. No reprieve, continual burning fire. And it's really reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah, isn't it? But even more so, it is a foretaste of the reality of hell as we see in Revelation 14, verse 10 through 11. And not only that, but God is going to deconstruct the land. In other words, he's going to deform the land. He's going to unconstruct the land in verses 11 through 15. And the world is literally pictured as being unmade. And the word used here is a line and a plumb line. And those words are tools used for construction throughout the Bible. But here, it's as if God is using these terms for deconstruction. It's as if he puts on his hard hat and picks up his tools and begins his demolition of the world. He begins to unmake the world that he has created. The language for what God is going to do, it comes from Genesis 1 verse 2 where we read the earth was formless and empty. That's what God is doing here. He is bringing it back 
to its formless and empty condition. The image depicting the world being unmade here is that of wild animals roaming the streets and weeds and thorns infesting everything. Now this past week, I saw a news article and it had a picture uh, that had an animal roaming the streets that was once occupied by people. And that was because of the coronavirus and the quarantine that we are in. But it immediately brought to my mind this image that is presented here. That when the world is uninhabitable, when people are not inhabiting the world, the animals come out and the thorns take over everything. And that is a sign of the curse of God taking over everything. You might say these things are just images, symbolic of the nation of Edom, and certainly the nation of Edom that we will explain further in just a little bit. The nation of Edom is used to communicate these greater truths. What God is going to bring on the nation of Edom is used to communicate these greater truths of judgment. But my answer to that, uh, to that would be that it is inconsequential to the point whether it is symbolic or literal. You see, because reality, the reality behind symbolic language is never less than what it is representing. Whenever you see symbolic language, the reality that it is representing is never less than the reality of what it is symbolizing. You see, it might be hard for us to understand, for instance, how animals could survive where the water in the land is completely fire all the time. But yet, if it is not literal fire that is being symbolized here, it is not less awful than literal fire. And it is certainly not less than eternal in its duration. If these are images, they are not just images. The harsh language here might appear to you kind of severe and over the top. It might sound like it is scaring people when we hear this language, but I want us to understand that the harsh language is because of the gravity of sin. John Calvin writes this, the intensity of the language is used to produce an impression upon human hearts which are so hardened that plain language leaves them unmoved. God does not just give us abstract ideas. God does not just tame down the language. And he doesn't do this for our good. It is not over the top what we read here. This is truth. And it is concrete and real and accurate truth about God's judgment. You might say, I don't like to think of God this way. I like to think of him only as a God of love, without wrath without justice, and without anger. But if that is the way you think, then you do not know the God of the Bible. You know someone else. And this means you have a problem with God. Let's get real practical here. Does this mean it is wrong to tell the world that God loves them? Do you have to choose between a just God and a loving God? Can you still say, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that those who believe might experience that love and know that love? 
Well, the answer is no. We don't need to choose between a loving God and a just and angry God. And let me explain what I mean by this. The very same place where we see God's judgment every day in the sickness, in the economic upheaval all around us, in the disasters, in cancer, is the very same place where we also see his love in his common grace. And the very fact that God does not give us immediately what we deserve. He doesn't give us the fullness of his wrath. He gives us air to breathe. That's God's love and his grace. God gives us food to eat. That is God's love and his grace to us. God is so patient with us. That is God's love for us. If we don't get everything bad, that is love and grace and patience of God towards us. Not only this, but we're also told when we were enemies is when Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were at odds with God and when he was at odds with us. That's when he loved us. That's what Romans 5, verse 7 through 8 tells us. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. John 3, 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life, that they might experience the love that God has for them if they believe in him. But we don't usually state along with that what comes two verses later. In John 3, verse 18, we read, those who do not believe remain under his wrath. Those who do not believe remain under his condemnation. So a half-truth paraded as the whole truth is a whole lie or an untruth, right? That is why we are not giving the full gospel if we parade it as such, if we merely tell people God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Now, there might be some truth in that, and there is, but if we come across as if that's the whole gospel, we are not telling the truth. We don't need to choose between a loving God and a just God. We shouldn't try. They are both true, and we can tell people both. And we should tell people the truth by telling them God is loving and he is just and wrathful. And judgment is coming. God is enraged at sinners, and yet he has loved us so much that he is patient with us for a time and has provided a shelter through his own son, a great shelter of salvation. What a magnificent gospel. What a magnificent salvation we have. Of all the people in the world, the church needs to awaken to the reality of God's judgment. If we are to be the ones who preserve the church, to preserve the truth, while the world is trying everything to throw it away, the church should be the ones, the one place where the truth is spoken in all its clarity. Shame on those who skip or treat lightly or pause as such passages, especially when there is a national crisis around us. Some people say that you don't want to speak the truth like this because it appears like you are judging people or manipulating people or scaring people into heaven. But it is never wrong or unloving or manipulating 
to speak the truth of God's judgment. It is, is it really that bad to urge people to flee to Christ for eternal safety with scary truths of judgment? Just recently, or a number of years ago, I should say, when my kids were younger, my wife found a mauled up, mutilated squirrel just outside our house on the road. And we lived in an area where the, where the cars would come crashing through at incredible speeds. And the kids were so young, they couldn't understand the danger that was right there in front of them. And so Alicia, my wife, got the kids together, gathered them together, and she pointed them to that mauled, mutilated squirrel, that disgusting-looking squirrel that had been that had been crushed by a car and told them, this is what's going to happen to you if you walk out on the street. Was my wife unloving for interfering with their lives? Was she judgmental? Should she have left it up to the kids to discover what happens when they walk out into the street? How much more if I love my kids, and if you love your kids, will you speak to them the reality of God's judgment? Every father who loves their kids is responsible to warn them of the judgment of God. One of my own sons recently came to me and told me he was scared that his siblings might not be with him in heaven. I said, that is a great concern. I said, your dad is concerned about that as well. And I said, what should we do about it? We should pray about it. And so that's exactly what we did. And then my son prayed as well. You secondly need to know why God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming because all who rebel against God are standing against his good purposes for his people. Notice one of the major reasons for the wrath of God that is mentioned is found in verse 8. And what we read there is that his wrath is coming upon Edom for Zion's sake. Zion's sake. That means the sake of God's people. And this is a good time to explain why the Edomites are mentioned. Why are the Edomites mentioned here? Well, how do they represent the nations in general who are in rebellion against God? Because that's why they're here. They're here to represent, be a symbolic picture. What's going to happen to them is what's going to happen to the nations. And we're supposed to see it in the reality of the Edomites. So why are they representative of the nations? And one reason that makes them so fitting to represent the nations is because they are notorious for opposing God's people. And we see this particularly in Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21. When Israel came to them and asked them if they could pass through their land because they were going to the promised land that God had given to them, they would not allow them to pass through. They represent all who stand against God's purposes for his people by rebelling against God. This is why the saving of God's people, the redeemed people from the Jews and the Gentiles, will include judgment on their enemies. And this is why when we see God saving his people by judging his enemies, 
we often see in the Bible a response of rejoicing by his people. Because God's kingdom is great, and it is great in part because there will be no corruption, no rebellion, and no opposition to God in his kingdom. God's wrath is also coming because all who rebel against God are seeking to dishonor his name. We see this reason for God's wrath wherever we hear of people being devoted by God to destruction. And we see that in verse 2 and verse 5 here. When God devotes something to destruction, like we see at Jericho, remember the story of Jericho? God told them not to preserve any of the spoil, not to keep any of the spoil. Everything was to be burned. Everything and devoted to destruction. It is because they have not only sinned against people, but they've rebelled against God to such a point where God says, you are devoted to destruction. You have been offensive and angered God so much that God says, I have devoted you to destruction. The Edomites represent all who are devoted to destruction from the nations. You see, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. And from Esau came the Edomites. They are from Esau is where the Edomites came from. And we read about what God says about Esau in Romans 9, verse 13. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. You see, however you define hated, it has to mean the opposite of love here. So if love means liked a little, then you could say that hated means liked a little less. But that's not what it means. To say that Jacob I have loved means that Jacob I have found favor with. That Jacob is under God's favor. To say that Esau I have hated is to say that Esau is under God's judgment. He is devoted to destruction. And that's what the Edomites represent. All from the nations who are devoted to destruction, who are under God's wrath and under his judgment. We see the reason for God's wrath in the picture of Edom as being a sacrifice to God. We see this same reason as being offensive to God in the fact that Edom is described as a sacrifice to God. Now, the sacrifice here is a little different than we often think of it. You see, this time, the sacrifice itself is the nation of Edom. You see, every sin requires a sacrifice. Sin requires death. Sin is a life or death issue, and every sin requires a sacrifice. Unless someone else is a substitute for a sacrifice for us and our sins, then you must yourself become a sacrifice for your sins. And Jesus alone is qualified to serve as a sacrifice for our sins. This means either Jesus is the sacrifice for your sins or you will pay as a sacrifice for your sins for eternity. All sin not paid for by Christ will be paid for by you. You thirdly need to know the certainty of God's judgment. You need to know how certain the judgment of God is that is coming. The sword in verse 5 that is filled with wrath communicates to us the certainty of God's judgment. The picture here is a little different than we often think of it. The sword is being filled with God's wrath. 
As God's wrath is built up, the sword is being filled more and more with the wrath of God until it comes to a point when it's going to come crashing down with great slaughter and judgment. The appointed day and year of vindication in verse 8 communicates the certainty of God's judgment. The day and year of judgment here is not talking about the duration of the judgment. It's not saying the judgment is going to be uh, 24 hours long as in a day or 360 days as in a year. It's saying that there's an appointed time, that there's an appointed time, that this is a scheduled in God's calendar for humanity to face the judgment of God. He will not tolerate insurrection and rebellion forever. And finally, the fact that the words of this judgment are written in a book and are spoken by God's mouth in verses 16 through 17 indicate the certainty of God's judgment. You might think, well, maybe God will change his mind in my case. Maybe he won't bring the fullness of wrath. Maybe he'll go to plan B, a different plan when it comes to me. Or maybe I can escape it. But God is in fact, emphatically making the point by saying, I have left a witness in, the, in my book that my judgment is coming. And not only that, I've spoken the command with my mouth, emphatically saying that his judgment is coming. This means there is no plan B for God's, from God's judgment. There is no other plan. God is not going to change his mind. You can't get around it. You can't escape from him in his judgment. There, since there is no plan B, the only alternative is that you reckon with the reality of God's judgment in your life. The only hope is that you turn to God for salvation. So what does the reality of God's wrath and his coming judgment mean for you and me in light of this passage? What is our response to this? Well, it means there is only one real problem in this world. Nothing else is really a problem in comparison to this. In fact, every other problem is a result of this problem. And when you fix this problem, you will ultimately be able to fix every other problem. It means you need to understand the truth of God's wrath and his judgment. If the foundational reason for all of our problems is the wrath of God, then you need to understand this if you're to understand anything else correctly in life. If we get this wrong, we get everything else wrong. And you most clearly see the justice of God in the cross. You see his judgment on the cross, and you see his mercy and his love in the very same place. You see what God demands, and you see God's mercy and his grace most clearly at the cross than anywhere else. And you need to think, you need to meditate, you need to remind yourself of these truths daily. It means you need to flee for safety in God's provision right now. Flee from the wrath of God. That's what this means. Run to Christ. Repent. Believe on him. There is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Today is the day of salvation. You see, if you don't run to him for safety, 
your paradise, which is today, whatever that is, the best paradise you're going to have is today, and it will turn into a burning desert. If you do turn to Christ, then your desert that you have today will one day turn into the paradise of chapter 35. It means you need to speak the truth of God's coming wrath to others. You see, there are only a couple reasons why we wouldn't speak of God's wrath. One reason is we don't really believe God's word. You might not tell others about God's wrath if you don't believe the truth of his wrath that is revealed in God's worth, or you just don't love people. And along with not loving people, you're most concerned about what they think of you. You see, we need to get to know our neighbors. We need, do you know your neighbors? Have you built a relationship with them? Are you able to speak the truth to them? Fathers, have you spoken the truth to your children? Are you speaking the truth to your children? Obviously, we need wisdom. We don't speak this all the time. But we need to speak it. And we need to know how to speak it. And we need to speak it in love to those around us. And lead people to the salvation that is found in Christ. It is said that one of the sparks of the fires of the Great Awakening came from a message by Jonathan Edwards entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached this message on July 8, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut. And someone described this message in this way. It is an appeal to sinners to recognize that they will be judged by God and that this judgment will be more fearful and painful than they can comprehend. In this message, Jonathan Edwards depicts people hanging over hell by the hands of God. He is holding them up from falling into hell with his hands, with his gracious and his patient hands. He is holding them up, dangling over hell from falling into the reality of his judgment. It's as if he is saying, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait another moment. Run to Christ for salvation. It is reported about the impact of his preaching, that the people listening shrieked and cried out, and the crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. Many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. I don't believe we will understand the love of God, nor will we experience another great awakening until we begin to take the wrath of God seriously and begin to understand the wrath of God more accurately. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are king. We thank you that you have a great kingdom. And that your rule is great. Lord, we thank you that you are a just God. And that therefore you will judge sin. Lord, we thank you also that you have provided a great salvation in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you would cause us not to rest for one second until we are safe in you. I pray that we do not rest for one second until we know that we are safe in the salvation that you have brought in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, cause us to run and flee to you for salvation. Help us to examine our lives and to see if we have come to you in faith. Lord, I pray that you would bring a great revival, a great saving work to us this day. Lord, I pray also that you would enable us Lord, to praise you for the great salvation that you have brought to us. Awaken our hearts to the greatness of your salvation. Help us to rejoice in you for saving us. Help us to rejoice in you that there is coming a day where we will receive a great kingdom. A kingdom that is filled with righteousness and justice. A glorious and perfect kingdom. And Lord, may you give us boldness and courage to speak of your judgment that is coming and to point people to the only one who can save us, who is Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you for your word. We thank you for your kindness in giving us the truth. Thank you for not watering it down. Thank you for not skimming over it. Thank you for speaking boldly and truthfully to us. And Lord, may we take it to heart, and may we live our lives in light of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.